and welcome to the Aussie Pastor Live, right here on Faith FM. G'day, my name is Lloyd Grolleman, I'm the Aussie Pastor, coming to you from our studios in northwest Sydney, a sodden, wet northwest Sydney. Hunty. G'day, mate. Our producer-director, welcome. Indeed, it is wet today. It is, and I'm glad to have you here on board with us as we get into this program. We've got a good program today. Yep. Might be It may be raining outside, there could be floods everywhere, but we've got an interview with John Carter. Probably one of the more successful evangelists in Adventist history. Absolutely. That will be interesting, I think. Yep. Later on, we're going to talk to Dr. Ross Grant about alcohol. Always good. Always challenging that subject. Yep. And then we'll be talking to Harold Harker, who'll bring us another story from the Reformation. So, with good music, some great Bible studies, and some good interviews, you'll want to stick around. You're listening to The Aussie Pastor, here on Faith FM. Auntie, yeah, mate. These floods. My goodness. They're biblical. I, I have been living in Sydney for 20 years. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, me either. We have two studios. Yes. We have our radio studio, which is here in Riverston. Yep. And, and we're besieged by floods here. We're surrounded by water. Yep. But the TV studio's out at St Albans. Mm, that's not good. In the McDonald Valley. We're in real trouble. Yeah. We've got a neighbour who's sending us pictures, and I think we're probably looking about half a metre now. Yeah, probably. Until the water gets into our studios. Yep. So we're praying furiously. And if you want to pray yeah, for please. us out there, we'll take the prayers and we'll update you next week. Yep. Let you know what happened. Unfortunately, Hunty's got a trailer out there full of gear. Mm, it's already under. It's already taken water. Yep. In fact, I shouldn't laugh, but we've been wondering whether it's going to float away. Yeah, we have. But these floods are incredible. And if you're out there and you're suffering with these floods, well, you're in good company. We're with you. Mm. Uh, we're scared, we're praying, we're looking for the Lord to rescue us too. So, so God bless you and, and may you keep safe. And then there is the United States of America. Man, there's some stuff going down on that mm, land. Very sad. Right now on the border, you've got masses. Get this. Now, you're a dad. Yep. You've got four kids. I do. I'm a dad, I've got four kids. Our kids are kind of growing up now. I think my youngest is 14, yours is... My eldest is 30. And your youngest is 20-something. Yeah. Yeah. So our kids are kind of moved beyond this, but you've got parents, Mexican parents, this is unbelievable, bringing their kids up to the border and then pushing them across the border to walk across the border into America by themselves. You're talking children as young as five, and they're doing it because if they go across the border too, then the entire family gets turned around and sent back to Mexico. Yep. But if they send just their children, yep. then the children are taken into care, looked after and brought up American. How desperate must you have to be? What drives a person to, to push their own flesh and blood away? I, I think poverty. Poverty, yeah, for a better life. Yeah, I, I think things are so bad in some places in Mexico that they risk losing their children forever to give them a better life. Yeah. But when you see these things happening, you know, the floods in Australia. Yep. You see desperate families on the border of the United States and Mexico. Yep. What does Jesus say? Know that your redemption... redemption. Draweth near Luke 21, mm. 28. You're listening to the Aussie Pastor here on Faith FM. Hey, Hunty. Yeah, mate. Do you listen to Gaither? Yes, love Gaither. Yeah. Are we, are we aging ourselves? Oh, 
I for suppose. The, for those of you who don't <laughs> well, know, we are old. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who don't know Gaither, very famous gospel singer in the United States. And one of the most famous singers that sings with Gaither is Guy Penrod. Penrod. He's a long haired, hippie looking guy. Cool, <laughs> cool guy. The girls love him. <laughs> Do they? I, I don't know. All right. <laughs> but, but, a, but a cool guy and a beautiful singer. And this song, He Hideth My Soul, I think you'll enjoy it.
like to welcome to our program today John Carter. He's a preacher, a pastor, teacher, television personality, a visionary, and perhaps responsible for more people finding Christ than any other in Adventist history. Amen. John Carter, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Grolman. We're glad to have you here today. Uh, you're not an easy man to get because you're very busy, and uh, we're so glad to have you on the program. I wonder if I could just... Thank you. Yeah, I wonder if I could just start by asking a, a few questions. Uh, you're, a, you're a father, a, a grandfather, that's correct? Yes, I am. And you're an Aussie? Yes, I am that also. I was, um, as they asked Bob Hope where he was brought up and born, he said he was born in such a place because he wanted to be near his mother. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like one of my well, dad jokes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was uh, I was born in the town of Esk uh, because I wanted to be near my mother. Then uh, yep. I was brought up uh, for a number of years in some at Somerset Dam, where my father worked on the building of the dam. Wow, I didn't and know that. Dam, yes, and then later on, they when we moved to Brisbane. Okay, so and you're a I Brisbane boy. Right next, well, sort of. I was brought up on the Brisbane River. Or better still to say, I was brought up next to the Brisbane River. Yep. But I spent a lot of time on the Brisbane River catching crabs and fish and eels and swimming. <laughs> Sounds like a, a great childhood to me. Not bad. I'd do it again if I could. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you see our kids these days stuck on their computers, not allowed outside, can't ride down the road because it's not safe. And then you think of childhoods like yours, it, it's almost uh, a, another world, I, isn't I, it? I, I, ideally. So you went to college, became a yes, pastor? I, I was educated largely in Brisbane. Then I went to Avondale College when I was... Um, I turned 17 in my first month at Avondale College. What were you doing at Avondale College? Well, the first year I was trying to find out what I was doing. Uh, The first year I got myself, by the grace of God, converted. And uh, I always had in my heart a desire to uh, preach the gospel of Christ, even though I didn't know it. I felt God's hand upon me. And so when I got to Avondale College... I did what I think they called in those days matriculation yes. or leaving. Yes. And so I, I did this in, in a year, and then I did a degree in theology. All right, so really you, at Avondale, you and, and just for our listeners so they know, Avondale College is to this day the only Adventist college of higher learning in Australia. I think, And it's, it's a good one. It's a good yeah, one. Yeah, it is a good one, very good one. I think it's been around for... Well, a hundred and... Longer, longer than us. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> hundred and twenty. No, it's been around since the 1890s. That's right. A long, long time. Um, so you, you're doing theology, which is the course in ministry. You, you, you did that in four years? Yes. Yes, that was the standard time, four years. So you graduate from theology. I think you began, for me as a, as a witness from afar, one of the most exciting lives of adventure in ministry anyone's ever been blessed to have. Well, I have had, an, uh, my wife and I have had very exciting lives. We have been greatly blessed. And so, we have seen uh, miracles. We've seen the great power of God. So you start as a, a church pastor, I'm imagining. Just give us a brief, yes, just yes, give us a brief yes. uh, overview of your ministry over, how long have you been a pastor? 
Oh, must be 200 years. 200 years. <laughs> well, I know. I know. Beverly and I have been in the ministry full-time for 59 years. Uh, when I was uh, just a baby, my mother, who did not go to any church, took me in her arms, got down on her knees, and dedicated me to God for the work of the ministry. And she told me this many, many years after I had been ordained. John Carter, you spent a little bit of time in an old church of mine, actually, my church that I was in before New Hope. So I wasn't there so long ago, to be honest. You spent some time there as the pastor. And they were very special days, not just for the church, but for you too, I know that. Share with us some of your recollections of your time at Warunga SDA. Warunga Church in those days was a very, very successful, booming Christian community Mm. associated with the Sydney Adventist Hospital. And I guess in those days you had, uh, I I hope to be accurate, but I think we had a... Uh, an active congregation of, of, of over a thousand people. Mm, mm. But we had a great booming, blessed church with hundreds of young people, many doctors who came from the Adventist hospital. And it was one of the highlights of our lives. I um, we loved the Wurunga church. I followed you many years later and the legend is that on any given Sabbath, the church would fill up fairly early and then they'd be putting chairs down the side and in the hallways and everywhere trying to cram everybody in for church. This is is true. Correct. Now, you did something, I think, phenomenal. When I call it phenomenal because it had never really been done before and it certainly hasn't been done since. And it it, it had the Sydney Opera House uh, as its base. Tell us about that a little. We hired with the uh, help of Robert Parr, the president of the church in those days, and the pastors of the conference, we hired the Sydney Opera House, and we hired it for the best part of six months. Mm-hmm. But we had possibly, we were told back in those days, it may not be true now, but we had the largest crowds up to that time in the history of the Opera House. How, uh, how many I people think, would that be? You know, you, you're making me think very hard now, but I think we had for the opening sessions of the Sydney Opera House and the Concert Hall, I think we had uh, 20,000 people. Wow. And, and that, in that, those days, that, that was somewhat, uh, you know, a large crowd. So why were a they, large group of people. So why were they coming to the Opera House? I have a philosophy. Yes. I've had it for many, many years, that if you want to reach secular people, you won't reach secular people with a bunch of religion jammed down their throat. Mm, mm. And uh, I think it was Time Magazine years ago did a survey. I'm, I'm sort of just going by memory on this one. Mm. To see the subjects that people were interested in. Mm, mm, mm. And it came out that they were interested in the occult and also antiquity, mm. where we came from. And so our opening programs combine those elements. Mm-hmm. Antiquity, ancient Egypt, the mysteries of the past civilizations, and the occult being the supernatural, which of course uh, for many people would include uh, predictive events, prophecies. Yeah, yeah. And so in our programs we open with the prophecies and the amazing wonders of lost civilizations. Mm. So you've got this particular approach you use 
in your outreach campaigns, your Billy Graham outreach campaigns. But then you go to Russia. Tell us more about that. I I ran the first ever evangelistic campaign by a foreigner in the far, in the Soviet Union in the former Soviet Union. So and it's just after campaign. the Berlin Wall. No, no, actually it was before it. Okay, wow. And so before the Berlin Wall came down, while Gorbachev was still on the throne in the Kremlin, I was invited to go to Moscow, and there was a, a sense, Lloyd, of glory in the air. Yeah. Um, when I when I ad- did some advertising, um, I was astounded. We hired the biggest hall we could get mm. just down the road from the Kremlin, because there was a sense of revolution in the air, everything was possible. Yeah. And so I started at 10 o'clock in the morning. This is no exaggeration. I was yep. younger then, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I started at 10 o'clock, and I preached through to 11 o'clock in the evening. How many sessions? Oh, well, they went from one to another. I have no idea. Wow. I had a break for, for eating and yep. drinking. Yes. And they would bring out musicians, and uh, somebody would massage my neck. Sure. And I'd go on the stage again. Uh, we had the place filled with the notables of that part of the world. Uh, we had um, heaps and heaps of military people in attendance. It, it was simply astounding, amazing. Yeah. And then I was interviewed by Russian television, not just on a local station, but from coast to coast. I was taken to the center of the Soviet broadcasting system. Uh, this was before communism was overthrown. Yeah. And... Um, I was interviewed for an hour on uh, this coast-to-coast network. This was the Soviet network. They asked me questions such as, uh, who is God? Why do you believe in God? Why is Russia crumbling? Why is the Soviet Union falling apart? What do you think about communism? What do you think about Karl Marx? And they went on and on. Yeah. I gave them straight Bible questions. Um. Amazing! Did you uh, come absolutely up? Absolutely astounding. So what? Here you are. It's, it's like you're in the the hot seat, right? Literally, uh, in the lounge room of the Kremlin. Did you come across yes. any resistance at all? At the, in that in in those days, while Gorbachev was there and revolution was in the air, everybody wanted to hear about Christ and the gospel. Uh, Andrew, who was interviewing me, he said, you know, I'm an atheist, I'm a communist, but tell me about God, tell me who Jesus was. Yeah. So I talked to them. Yeah. And then at the end of the interview that lasted for an hour, uh, an hour that went from coast to coast, the television crew, all the cameramen came up the front and the producers and the young women and the, the makeup artists, probably 20 of them. Yep. And they stood around me. And they said, please tell us more about God. And I said to them, do any of you pray? And they said, we don't know what that means. So on the set of uh, this great television station in Moscow, I had them bow their heads and open their hearts, and I taught them how to pray. These were amazing events. So when we got down to Nizhny Novgorod, where we had possibly up to that stage, the largest crowds of secular people in the history of Russia, 
for a thousand years. I'm yeah. talking about secular crowds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Moscow Television sent a television crew. Wow. Didn't ask our permission. I said, well, who are these people getting around here with these cameras? We don't own these cameras. They said, oh, well, this is Moscow TV. I said, what on earth are they doing? They'd come down to televise the series. Yeah. Not yeah. only did they televise wow. the series, but they produced a one-hour documentary set to glorious Russian Orthodox music, and they played it from coast to coast across the former Soviet Union. Unbelievable. Well, it is somewhat unbelievable. It's almost Pentecost, you know that? Oh, no, not, not, not almost Pentecost. It was Pentecost. Yeah. We saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We saw people healed. So you're in Kiev, Russia. You stir them up. They're not happy. What goes down then? The city was in an uproar uh, because the the Russian, the Ukrainian Orthodox Pope, I'm using that term somewhat uh, in a broad sense, mm. but the man in charge of the Orthodox Church said, John Carter will preach in this city only over my dead body. Uh, I wish he had not said that. I wish I could have met him and talked to him. Yes. But he said, we will stop him coming and we will close down the meetings. Mm. Well, just a few days before we got off the plane in Kiev, uh, this man who was vigorous and strong dropped dead. Uh, the government took note of this and uh, they decided that they were going to the church, was going to bury him in the National Orthodox Cathedral. Okay, yes. But the government said because of what he did and what he tried to do to John Carter, he's not going to be buried. He can be buried on the footpath, on the sidewalk. Outside the cathedral. Yeah, and so the priest said this will never happen, so they came out with wooden crosses and they took on the militia and the militia shot them down. Wow. So before we got there, the streets of Kiev had been stained with blood. Mm. Um, you can see his tomb today outside the cathedral on the, on the sidewalk and the date of his death is just a few days before the campaign opened. Uh, I must say that we took no no joy or happiness in his demise. No. I, I wish that we'd met him and we could have talked and become friends. Mm. Uh, when I got over there, his successor, the Philaret, put on a, a reception for me and received me with great honor. Yeah, yeah. And put his arms around me and said, we thank you for coming. Yeah. He wanted to be friends. It's a sobering story, isn't it? Really, of what can happen. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't try to. I wouldn't try to stand in in the way of God's work. I yeah. wouldn't want to say over my dead body. No, and uh, I wouldn't want to try to stop the preaching of the gospel. You just may not be around to uh, uh, do much about it. Have you got any idea? I guess you don't, but I'll ask the question anyway. Have you got any idea? In the 59 years, I think you said you've been preaching, have you got any idea how many people have found Christ through your ministry? Uh, Pastor Groleman, uh, Beverly and I have a policy. Yep. And we are very conscious of this. Yep. Uh, God keeps the books. God's in charge of those things. 
we don't uh, we, we don't even get involved in this. We have seen many many. We, all we can say is we have seen many many people come to Christ. Why is it that We've you seen, don't get involved in that? What what what's oh, the motivation I become, there? I think it can. I think it can become extremely carnal. Yeah. You know, some person look. Oh, he's baptized ten thousand. Yeah. Oh, he's baptized. Oh no, this one's baptized fifty. Yeah. That doesn't. That's not the indication of true success. Yeah. God is the indication of true success. Yeah. Uh, God is the, is the judge, and I think we need, especially. I'm talking to myself. We need to walk very humbly before God and realize. We are simply clay. Yeah. As one great friend of mine said, we are simply animated mud on the way to dust. Yeah, yeah. Think about that yeah, one, yeah. animated <laughs> yeah. So we, we don't want to get too boastful. No. Anything great that has been done is done by God. And I tell people when, when they hear about some of these things, I say, I was just lucky enough to be there. Yeah. I was in the right time, in the right place. I was there, and God used me. I'm guessing that the power that you need to do programs like you've been involved in, that it would be impossible to do it without God and thus the need to be humble because you can't do it without that sort of humility because it is God that provides the power and does it. We were never backed by a church organisation that said, well, you're going to go to Russia. Here's um, five hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had to raise every nickel, every dime, and people sent us money, as they still do. Yes. Um, you know, over the years, we've had large sums of money that have come, been sent to us, mm-hmm. that has gone into the preaching of the gospel in, in very dangerous and desperate places. Yeah. And when God saw there was a need, God not only raised up a, a great team for me, yeah. but he raised up the money. Yeah. But we will be God's servants by the grace of God as long as we can. Well, thank you. That's good advice. And thank you, John Carter, Pastor John Carter, for jo- you. joining us today. I hope we can... Dr. Grom, thank you. I hope we can get you back online and, and get some more stories out of you. I know you've got a million and they're they all are inspiring. Um, we wish you all the best. And, and uh, God bless you too. We hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, blessings to you. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. You. You're listening to the Aussie Pastor here on Faith FM. He's an interesting fellow. Is that fellow John Carter an amazing you know? man? Yep. Yeah. Look, I, I think Andrew, we need to get him back. Yes, that let's. He actually did a big outreach over in India. Yep. And he got thrown out. I'd like, the, I'd like to hear that story. Yeah, the power of God of what God then did. We have to get him back. You know, as we're doing this program, we're doing this live, aren't we? We are. Right 100%. now, yeah, this is not recorded. We're sitting here uh, in the studio at the front of my house yep. in, in Riverston. It's raining outside. I can't help but think, and it's, it's, you know, you try to trust God, and we do trust God. That's right. And he gives you peace through these times. But it is a bit of a, a worrying time because I'm just thinking as this rain pours down and the flood comes up, yep. up. Yep. Uh, you know, how much longer have we got? How close is it to the front right. door? As, of our... as we sit here, our studio could be underwater. Yeah, and you're praying and hoping not. Yep. And so this next song from BJ Thomas, he got it all under control. I actually chose this song because of the flood that we're going through right now. So I think 
If you're in flood and you're worried like Hunty and I are, Hunty's already lost his trailer, it seems. Yes. Although we won't know till we get out there. That's right. And I'm on the verge of losing studio and it's our house. Got to keep remembering, as BJ Thomas tells us in this song, God's Jesus, he got it all under control. Got it all in control. He's got it all in control. He's put that reassurance way down in my soul. He's got it all in control. I've put my life in his hands So every road I walk down I'm sure is in his plan Cause I've put my life in his hands He holds the stars in the sky He's got it all in control He's put that reassurance way down in my soul He's got it all in control believe he has, auntie. Amen. As BJ said, he's got it all under control. I feel some peace even listening to that song. Yep. Because this is a time of tension and pressure for us. Yes. Um, it took us a long time to build that studio. Yes. A lot of money. A lot of, lot of volunteer man hours as well. Yeah, yeah. And you're thinking, oh, is that all going to be swept away? And Satan's been attacking that studio. Yes. You remember uh, just over a year or so ago, a fire, a great fire that we had around, yep. came right down to the boundaries of our property. Yep, we were fighting hot embers on the property. And God stopped that fire. Yep. And I'm praying that God will stop the flood, and if he doesn't, 
you know what? It's, I'm not going to forget the words of those songs. Mm. God's got it all under control, and you've got to believe it. Yep. And I do believe it. I really do believe it. It's hard, but I believe it. Hey, um, you know, all my life, well, when I was young, I used to play football. I'm talking, when I talk football, I'm not talking about that aerial ping pong they <laughs> play down in Victoria and South Australia. I'm talking rugby league. Yep. Uh, I enjoyed playing rugby league. Um, I, I kind of don't get into it as much as I used to. You know, the more Jesus has come into my heart and the more influence he's had on me, the, the less rugby league has had uh, a pull on me. To the point where, as you know, I'm a Queensland boy, so state of origin. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't even watch it anymore. True. It's not that I, I don't want to. I just don't have the same desire for it that I once had um, before Jesus. You know, Jesus comes into your heart and he comes into your soul and it's a deeper and deeper experience every year. But, you know, if you watch rugby league and if you're aware of rugby league, you've heard of a guy called Jared Hayne. Yes. Jared Hayne is probably the finest fullback the game of rugby league has almost ever had. Now, that's arguable, but he was really good. I mean, that guy, yeah, yeah, he was yeah. mercurial. He'd take the ball on his 22, which is way, way near his own goal line. I've seen him do this, take the ball mm. and run, mm. twinkle toes. Yep. Just beautiful to watch. Yep. Straight through the entire team. Fortunately, he never did it in State of Origin. Never played as well in State of Origin <laughs> as he did for Parramatta. I've always been very thankful for that. But that guy w- was just a mercurial player. He ended up with the San Francisco 49ers right. switching codes. Probably could have made it except the bias. Again. He had the skills, there's no doubt. Oh, for sure. He comes back here. He gets accused by a girl of rape. I've been keeping up with it in the news because I've been such a fan of Jared Hayne through the years. It was very sad for me just the other day to see that, well, it was yesterday actually, yep. um, the jury came back and uh, he's not just accused now, he's convicted. Mm, guilty. And he's got a little bit of a, a lull between now and the sentencing and then he'll be sentenced and the, the judge said, look, you can expect jail time. Yes. And it was a pretty serious offence because as he left that, he turned up to that girl's place. I don't want to get into it too much, but he turned up to that girl's place one evening. He wasn't there long, and when he left, I saw the pictures of her bedroom and her bed, and there was just blood everywhere. And I mean, this is this is a pretty serious sort of thing. Very. And it got me thinking, you know, there's something wrong, Hunty, with many of our boys. Yes. Who don't get that no means no. no. When a young woman says no, it actually means no. And I, you went away and did... A little bit of research on this. I did. I, I had a look. I had a look today to see how bad the picture is in Australia, and I discovered that one thousand to fifteen hundred people turn up at a police station each month in Australia to report being raped. That's staggering. Or sexually assaulted. Fifteen hundred, mostly young women, turn so, up to police stations. Yep. To share with the police a mm, rape. Mm. Sadly, ten percent of them barely get through the door. And they're turned around. The police aren't interested for whatever reason. Okay. Then 25% are resolved by police and there's no arrest and there's no legal action. So of every young woman or old woman who turns up to a Mm. police station Mm. to report a rape, 35% literally don't get past the first door. That's right. Front door. And, and, And even worse, victims, survivors, withdraw one in five sexual assault reports. That means their their families, their communities have put them under pressure or the actual offender has them under pressure to withdraw their sexual assault complaint. 
and I find that absolutely horrendous. I don't know whether you're adding up the percentages here, but you're looking at somewhere around 50% of women who report a sexual assault crime, it doesn't go anywhere. Only 30% of all reported cases lead to an arrest, a summons or legal action. Wow. And the last, second last sad stat is 35% of all reported sexual assaults in Australia remain unresolved, unsolved. Okay. So 17% of women and nearly 5% of men in Australia in their lifetimes will be sexually assaulted. Yeah, that's, that's really serious, isn't it? Do you know this terrible. I listen, as I'm listening to you, and I know you went and, and studied up on that to, to get those statistics, and I'm listening to this. You know, there's two things I've learned. The first thing is when a woman says no, and if you're a young man out there listening, you need to hear this. When a woman says no, it means no. You don't. And that starts, that starts back at the start of the date, at the start of the evening when you're out having a good time and dancing. That's before you start drinking. Yeah. When a woman says no, we need to respect that as men. You're not a man if you don't. The second thing is this. Those who walk with Jesus mm. will never get themselves into positions of sexual immorality anyway. That's right. Because this sort of behaviour between a man and a woman is designed for marriage and marriage alone. And in a world that's falling down and full of darkness, yep. where there's so much hurt and pain, it again reminds us how God's way is always right. Yes, God is the one who designed men and women to enjoy the pleasures of sexual fulfillment within the boundaries of marriage. Yes, And if we follow God's plan, we treat our spouses with the gentleness and the kindness that God expects we will find that it is always the right way. It's always the way that will bring you happiness. It's always the way that will bring you peace. You're listening to The Aussie Pastor here on Faith FM. Funny, hunty. <laughs> this next song he can by Naomi Moore. Now, I don't know this musician, this singer. I just found this song. All these songs today seem to have a theme. Yes. God will look after you. God can. Beautiful. God is strong. Beautiful. God is powerful. I think I must have chosen these subconsciously again with the pressure we're all under with this flood. And this is a True. beautiful True. song. It's the True. first time, first time I've ever come across this song. Maybe for some of you, it's the first time you've ever heard it too. I think you're going to enjoy it.
welcome Dr. Ross Grant to the program today. Welcome. Great to be with you, Lloyd. Remind us, Dr. Ross Grant, what you do and where you come from. Well, my background, uh, or at least specialty, is biochemical pharmacology. Um, I'm an academic researcher. So I spend a lot of time on the science of uh, what makes us healthy. I guess we should say, say right from the start, um, Dr. Ross, that both you and I, and even our producer-director here, Hunty, we are teetotalers. We don't drink at all. That's correct. And I'm hoping in this interview now that you might, our listeners, get a good idea and concept of why we don't drink. So I think we'll just get straight into the questions, Dr. Grant. Sure. Uh, number one, in any form, can alcohol be good for you? Is there anything in any way that alcohol can be good for us? Well, look, number one, alcohol is a great way of sterilising things. Um, so uh, if you want to sterilise tabletops and sterilise instruments and things like that, alcohol has been used for many years for being able to do that because what it does do is, is it um, damages the cell wall of, of bacteria yep. and uh, it kills it. Now, you can say that's a positive thing. And look, there are positives when it comes to alcohol, but let me just deal with a couple of, of negatives first of all. Okay. The reason why I introduced it that way is because if alcohol is damaging bacteria, which the cell wall tends to be a little bit stronger than our own, mm-hmm. you can imagine that the alcohol that you put on your own skin and the alcohol that goes down through your throat, down into the stomach, etc., is going to do some damage. There's a reason, and I suspect we'll get onto this later on, but if I just make the comment here, is any amount of alcohol good for you from that perspective, in other words, that damaging, cell-damaging perspective, mm. I can say that uh, consistent with uh, Cancer Council of Australia, mm. they have put out a fairly strong statement uh, a number of years ago, which is consistent with any amount of alcohol actually mm. increases your risk of cancer. And remember that cancers, particularly at the mouth, throat, etc., but cancers are just a damaged, uh, where the cells have been continually damaged and not repaired, and so now they have a dysregulated genome and they grow without being controlled. So it makes sense that something that we can kill and damage bacteria can also damage ourselves. So that's the first thing. And from the Cancer Council's point of view, any amount of alcohol will do damage. Mm. And I mentioned some positive things now. Yep. Okay. So the positive things with alcohol is, of course, the way it makes people feel. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's the reason why people take it, um, because... Um, it does give them a little boost. It actually gives them a little high. It stimulates the reward pathway, which is associated with dopamine. And it also tends to relax the front part of the brain. Now, I know I'm kind of just going on, but mm. um, if, if you want me just to talk briefly about how that works. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that'd be good. Okay. Well, what happens when you start taking alcohol? And it, it begins to affect you actually from the front part of the brain through yes. to the back part. So the front part of the brain, what we call the frontal lobes or prefrontal cortex, these are the areas of the brain that we do our thinking and reasoning and making decisions. Mm-hmm. It's also the part that, uh, because we are doing all the thinking there, it's the part that actually uh, we use to worry over things. Okay. So it's very common that at the end of the day, if somebody wants to just uh, put those worries aside a little bit, taking a little bit of alcohol, it will actually reduce the... Firing of some of the neurons. Now, for those people who are technical, I'm just going to mention what it does. It actually, what we call, um, it activates or stimulates a certain type of receptor called the GABA. Yes. And that that is the brain's brake. So what it means is alcohol helps to put the brake on a little bit more in the frontal lobes to begin with. 
So that's why people um, say I drink to escape. Yeah, drink to escape because they are. They're, they're actually shutting down their capacity to think, quite honestly. Yeah. So they're actually slowing down the brain there. If they keep drinking, what happens is, of course, that gets even worse. But then it starts to move back and affect other things, and it gets through to the motor cortex and further back. It can, you know, if you keep drinking, ultimately it can affect the the, uh, the hind brain and affect your ability to breathe, and that can uh, be fatal. But uh, yeah, so it moves to the front. You stop thinking so well. It keeps moving back to the part where it affects our motor coordination and things like that. And that's why people start to to stagger because it's actually affecting that part of the brain then. And, as you go on, it gets gradually more. That, to me, seems all negative, actually, when you really think about it. Well, yeah, look, I, I think there are better ways of being able to, um, certainly being able to control your thinking. Yeah. But, Lloyd, I, I think we, we recognise that the world... So, yes, I think that there are better ways. Well, I, well I, I, I think as a Christian, uh, you know, when I've got troubles and trials and challenges and worries, that's yeah. why I go to Jesus. Yeah, and absolutely, and that is your best source in terms of trying to provide some kind of uh, relational context to the troubles that you're going through and yeah. solutions to those problems. Because the problem with drinking, of course, is that it stops you from worrying over that period of time and does give you relaxed feelings. Yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, it doesn't solve the problem no. for which you were trying to escape. And I think that's where Jesus comes in too. Um, he yeah, does. He yeah. does not. And not only does he. He he relax you, and he carries your burdens and your worries. He actually solves problems for you too. Um, and I would agree with that, Lloyd, and I, I would certainly encourage people who know how that actually works and how to develop that relationship to get alongside of people if they want to, yeah. who are using other means. Now, alcohol is one of them, yeah. and we know it's a very popular one. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you know, apart from even just slowing people down or, or having people get off, uh, their, their uh, worry merry-go-round. The other reason why people will do it is because of the the need, the social interaction side of things. Yeah. It, it helps to disinhibit people uh, because yeah. they're not thinking. And, and, you know, we could talk about how that affects people at a social level and the decisions that are made under the influence of alcohol never tend to be that great. You know what I noticed, um, Dr. Ross? Um, mm-hmm. At the moment, you know, uh, sexual assault and consent is big time in the media. Yes. And yet when you look at the crimes, and of course this is not an excuse in any way, but when you look at the crimes of men against women when it comes to sexual consent and sexual sexual assault, almost every single time alcohol and the heavy use of alcohol is involved. You're right. And, uh, you know, I think that there's, there's any number of, of uh, social studies that have actually shown the relationship between alcohol and violence, alcohol and abuse, mm. is is uh, is very tight. Mm. Uh, well, so, inappropriate use of alcohol uh, is is uh, certainly a, a cause for a lot of our social discontent. Well, I think even the state government recognises that when they're closing down. Just recently, they've only opened it up again recently, and they closed down Kings Cross and huge swaths of the inner city because of the terrible crimes uh, that were being perpetrated. Alcohol fueled crimes by yeah. what you would call usually good people. Um, yeah, and it's for those same reasons that that alcohol is having an effect on the frontal lobe. So yeah. a lot of the emotional content isn't regulated. So people are responding emotionally to things both in a positive way as well as 
uh, you know, in other sort of ways. And unfortunately, that's not regulated because the frontal lobes don't have the capacity to, to perform. Are men or women more prone to alcohol? Uh, look, when it comes to the effects of alcohol, women uh, are, and it's generally because of their smaller size. And yes. uh, uh, so per weight, they've also got a higher fat content as well. Their percentage of fat tends to be higher. So per weight, they actually have a lower um, uh, capacity to to, uh, uh, to deal with alcohol than men. What about, uh, and I, I'm careful when I say this question, and I mean it respectfully, but are certain races gen- genetically more prone to alcohol? Look, I, I ask that because, and, and I, I think I may be wrong on this one, but I was reading just when I was doing a little bit of research on this myself that white European men are genetically more prone to alcoholism and the effects and al- of alcohol than, than perhaps other of other race. Now, I don't know whether that's true, or is alcohol going to affect the human race pretty much the same across the board? Well, no, it doesn't. And there's two areas in here that are associated with genetics. One of them is a little bit more nebulous. Yep. But the idea of alcoholism, for somebody who will become an alcoholic, yes. um, there certainly are uh, genetic factors because there's, there's good links with, with family history. And it's probably is true that those with a Caucasian background certainly seem to be the ones, or at least there seem to be a, a lot more alcoholics within that kind of uh, uh, genetic uh, group. Yeah. But that may also be associated with the fact that when alcohol is metabolized relatively well by most of the Caucasian population, Yes. so it's metabolized by a couple of things as an alcohol dehydrogenase and aldehyde dehydrogenase, yep. and a thing called P452E1. Sorry for the technical side, but they tend to be okay with that. So therefore, the reward pathway is the one that kind of gets them hooked in. Mm-hmm. Whereas 40%, so only 10% of Caucasians can't actually metabolize alcohol very well. Okay. Whereas, for, for example, 40% of, of Southeast Asians, uh, which uh, can't metabolize alcohol very well. And what that means is, and it's particularly the, the acid aldehyde, well, the, the aldehyde dehydrogenase mm. they don't have. And so almost one in two, or getting close to one in two of them can't use alcohol particularly well. It actually wow. high concentrations of one of the uh, one of the bright byproducts, which makes them feel sick and red flush, and so they won't drink alcohol. So therefore it becomes less of an issue if you really don't like if the, the effect of alcohol on you. So yeah, yeah. a large proportion of those populations won't do it. Okay. I, I come from a family of alcoholics. Um, right. Yeah, very sad on my mother's side. Um, mm. and, and it was interesting f- for me to listen to you talk about the genetics. So if you come from a family of alcoholics, your chances of becoming an alcoholic are a lot higher than if you come from a family of teetotalers. Well, that's correct. So there's, there's been fairly strong links that have been, uh, that have made those associations over. Yeah. And yeah. It's one of the reasons why it's really suggested, you know, don't start because it, it may be alcoholism or it may be associated with addictive behavior broadly. Yeah. So, uh, there's risks for being addicted to other things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is alcohol dependence and how do I know I've got it for our listeners? Um, I think that's an important question. Yeah, it is. And, and if, Alcohol dependence, so a lot of people will drink alcohol socially yep. and um, they'd be cap- comfortable if, if they're going along to uh, a social event and having you know, a glass of wine or a can of beer. Uh, but if they don't have it the next night, they're not particularly worried. Mm-hmm. If 
you're somebody who pretty much has to have their alcohol on a daily basis, then you can be certain that your tracking is not already there mm. to a dependent. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happens is that when the brain is getting used to something like that, and there's a variety of reasons why dependence occurs, mm-hmm. but the brain does rewire itself and it then becomes just dependent. For the reasons that I mentioned, it actually uh, it, it promotes or stimulates the GABA receptor. So it doesn't mm-hmm. directly stimulate the receptor, mm-hmm. but it just makes the GABA more, more effective. Mm-hmm. And so... When that's acting that break, the body will actually down-regulate yep. uh, some of these uh, uh, effects because it's, they're quite strong, so it down-regulates the receptor. So when you don't have alcohol anymore, then the brain is now wired in the wrong way and it becomes overexcited. so you get yeah. a whole lot of things happening so you don't feel so good. So yeah, yeah. if you've been taking alcohol enough for the brain to rewire in that way, then when you stop having alcohol, you're definitely going to feel I, su- I, I suppose that is the the test in the end. Uh, if, if you're not sure whether you've got alcohol dependence or not, stop taking it and see what happens. Correct. Yep, correct, and see how well you go. And a lot of people say, oh, look, I can stop at any time. And uh, I was talking to somebody just recently who's uh, decided to go off it for uh, uh, doing a whole, uh, in fact, they're going to go off till I think, uh, the middle of the year. Yep. And were surprised how difficult it was for the first two weeks. Once yeah. they got through the first two weeks, it seems to be a lot easier. But, um, no, they're, they're, uh, there's more people than realise they're dependent. So if I am, if I work out that I'm alcohol dependent, can I escape and how? Well, you certainly can. And, you know, I'm sure, and I, I'm not sure whether or not your program puts up uh, um, some of the uh, um, some of the resources that are available within the community resources being able to, to stop alcohol. If you feel you have a major alcohol dependence, then it's probably, and you're having, you know, more than, uh, you know, three or four beers a night. Yep. Uh, and going through a bottle of wine an evening. I mean, these are, this is probably now something that, uh, you might want to be helped in terms of your management to come off it. Mm. Because some of them can have uh, some quite significant side effects, mm. uh, which it would be probably worth having somebody helping you, uh, somebody professional helping you come off that. So you're um, saying go to your doctor for help? Doctor is a good place to start and there's certainly a lot of resources there. Just somebody who can sort of keep an eye and uh, and help you work through what will be a pretty tough time for yeah. a couple of weeks. We've already spoken a little bit about this, but what are the risks of drinking alcohol? And I ask that, and let me preface this question by by just telling a very short antidote. I had some problems with my neck last year. I went to the doctor. He automatic. He asked me some questions. One, do you drink? No. Do you smoke? No. He pretty much ruled out immediately throat cancer. And I said, well, why did you do that? He said, well, because you don't drink and you don't smoke. And I thought to myself, ah, there are some advantages to not smoking, not drinking. Now, I, I, I just use that as a little story to illustrate that, that perhaps there are some real risks with drinking alcohol that Aussies don't think about a whole lot. There's no question that uh, alcohol intake, uh, even, and, and we did this experiment, so everybody, you know, if I say to people, you know, what what will alcohol, if I want to damage my uh, liver, what would I do? And they would go, okay, drink alcohol. Yeah. Everybody knows yeah. that it's damaging to that. And that's because the liver is the organ that uh, metabolizes alcohol. It goes into the body, and for the body to get rid of it, it uses uh, a couple of enzymes within the liver, 
yeah. that it breaks it down into things and finally is able to excrete it. But the liver has to work very hard. So you can do a lot of damage to the liver yep. by continuing to put alcohol in. Yep. In addition to that, as we said, when you drink it, it's going to, particularly anything with, with sort of the harder spirits, the higher percentage alcohol, it, you know, it's got to go across the mouth, gums, teeth, yeah. back of the throat, down yeah. into the stomach. So all of those get flushed with alcohol. Yeah. And as we were saying earlier on, those cells, your body's cells, are in, in contact with the alcohol. And remember that alcohol is a very effective uh, sterilizer. Yeah. It sterilizes bacteria that sit on the bench and gets rid of it because it, it damages those cells. Well, those bacterial cells are actually tougher than your cells. Wow. And so you're putting alcohol across all of these different cells, and, of course, it keeps damaging them. And that's one of the ways in which, in fact, cancers always start by constant damage, which yeah. doesn't get repaired. Yeah. And here, if you're doing it on a regular basis, constant damage, yes, it's going to damage it. And you can get so, some nasty cancers from alcohol. Uh, I mean, yes. really nasty. Yeah. Well, it increases your risk of all of those, you know, all of those throat, you know, um, yeah. uh, cancers, etc., stomach cancers. But it actually also increases your risk of breast cancer. Yep. And increases your risk of bowel cancer. Yeah. Again, nasty and cancers. Nasty cancers and very common ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if, if you want to avoid some of those things, the best thing is not to do things that are going to damage the uh, damage the body. There's nothing wrong with feeling good. There's nothing wrong with wanting to feel good. Yeah. And alcohol, for a lot of people, it can help them do that. But the trouble is that it's doing something which is going to damage the body and doesn't help you solve the problem. So finding better ways of doing it, I guess, is what we were encouraging earlier, Lloyd. So can um, I can, can I can I moderately drink, and it'll be okay, and I won't be really up in these risk areas, or, or do you say no, Lloyd, abstain? Well, look, and and it's not me actually. The the cancer council is saying, in terms of cancer and your risk of cancer, any amount of alcohol intake, even if it's what we would consider mild or moderate, even with one glass a day will actually increase your risk significantly of developing those types of cancers that we mentioned, including including breast, bowel, uh, the, the oropharyngeal cancers, the mouth cancers, etc. So you're just saying so, abstain, abstain. Abstain would, would be the best thing there. And look, I'll just add one quick thing. Yep. Um, part of the work that we do in, in research is looking at um, uh, particularly degenerating brain uh, conditions, so um, degenerative dementia. And uh, we had looked at the uh, inflammation within the brain of a whole range of different people. And it looked like that on the basis of what we were seeing here, that even one alcoholic drink a day was enough to see an increase in inflammation in the brain. And the body gets inflamed when it gets damaged. The immune system switched on, that's what gives us inflammation. So I said to uh, my PhD student at the time, I said, well, why don't we grow some brain cells and just put alcohol on them? Yep. and see how much alcohol it would take to actually start damaging them. Now, for an average male, two standard drinks will give you a blood alcohol of around about 0.05. Yep. So we looked at a range from 0.05 down, up and below, yep. and there was no question that uh, even one standard drink was enough to start to see damage within the DNA of these brain cells that we were growing in culture. Um, and, and it is no, the alcohol that does it, isn't it? Like, I could drink pure grape juice, which is non-alcoholic, and that's yeah. not going to do the damage that 
Correct. Grape, grape yeah, juice, no, which is alcoholic wood. Correct. It is, it's the alcohol that's in there that's actually doing the damage. Um, what we do say to people, though, and, and just being fair, is that uh, the body's very good at repairing itself. Yeah. So we think the body probably repairs that fairly uh, fairly well. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, again, just keeping in mind that, uh, you know, you are doing the body damage here in, in, the, in, the, in the sense of the brain. Yeah. Look, it's well recognised that in terms of the dementias associated with high levels of alcohol intake. Yep. The lower levels, just like with the cardiovascular disease, there is, um, uh, there's literature actually on both sides of it. Uh, saying that low to moderate levels might actually be protective. Now, there's studies that say that and there's studies that don't. So mm. you do need to be a little bit careful. And, of course, those that want to promote lots of alcohol, and particularly the ones that are selling it to you, will like to promote the ones that are telling you that it's okay. Um, just a couple of more quick questions. Yeah. Why do I get a hangover after binge drinking? Yeah, well, a hangover can occur even without binge drinking, but certainly binge drinking uh, does it. Uh, one of the main things, there's, there's two theories in that. One is that it might be some of the, depending on what you're actually drinking, uh, because there is a number of other um, molecular components that come in depending on how what it was brewed from, whether or not yeah. it was hops or whether it was brewed on various other stuff. Yeah. Uh, however, the more popular one is that the alcohol itself will actually produce uh, a, um, uh, a dehydration effect. Yeah. And uh, that tends to be... And, and uh, there seems to be some good evidence that if you drink a lot along with your alcohol, you are less likely to get... In other words, drink a lot of water along with the alcohol intake. Less likely, then, yeah, and dehydrate. You won't less, be dehydrated. Yeah, less likely to get the hangover. Um, is beer less harmful than wine, and, and how about spirits, or is it all the same? Yeah, well, so it just depends really on the alcohol content largely. Um, people will argue that, uh, particularly in the red wines and this, goes back largely to uh, one of the studies, particularly from, from the French. But the red wines do contain a higher level of what we call polyphenol yep. uh, because the alcohol has been brewed on the, or at least the fermentation has happened on the skin of the red grape. And yep. there's, there's a lot of positive things that come through from the wine, things like resveratrol, and things like that. Yeah. Um, so to some extent, a red wine actually has more positive things, but yeah. if you went out and ate a bunch of grapes, you'd probably get in the, <laughs> And, uh, you know, more effective way of getting yeah. it without the alcohol. Yeah, um, it's always a better way, isn't it? Eat the fruit. Yeah, eat the fruit. And look, let me just finish off on that because, you know, alcohol, uh, it tends to have a lower uh, alcohol content than the wine and, and that has a lower alcohol content yeah. than the spirit. So it's more the alcohol content. By the time you're sort of getting up into, uh, uh, you know, some of those uh, hard spirits, which have really got not much else in them but 40% alcohol and water, um, wow. You know, that, that's pretty strong stuff. Yeah, it is. Look, one last question, uh, one that I've often wondered about because my mates have always said it. Does coffee or food help me sober up quickly? Well, it, it, in terms of, uh, from a sobering point of view, I'll come to that in a second. If you take alcohol while you have food in the stomach, you'll actually absorb that alcohol a lot slower. So if you've got alcohol in the stomach, then uh, you will tend to be able to drink more alcohol before you're actually over the limit. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It does. It does. Yes. If you've actually already got the alcohol in the system, then yeah. taking food is not going to help you. Yeah. It's, now, inter it's interesting, isn't it, that, that when you're watching, uh, like I, I watch on television, uh, what is it, when they when they 
pull them up, FBT or something or other. RBT. Oh, yeah, RBT, yeah. RBT, thank yeah, yeah. you, Auntie. Yeah. <laughs> um, the police do actually ask, how many drinks you have you had? And then they will ask, how much have you eaten? Yeah, um, yeah. And how long since you've eaten? Yeah, uh, yeah. So it is a factor, but... Uh, it is a factor. If, you, if you've eaten, you can actually drink more before you're over the limit because the alcohol gets absorbed slower and you metabolize it. We don't suggest that today. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, broadly speaking, we know uh, it's up to everybody what they do, but from a health point of view, it's not something that you would recommend yeah. uh, as is the best way, yeah. I've got uh, a producer director here in as we close in the studio, Hunty, who has the wonderful privilege actually of saying that he has never in his entire life drunk alcohol. True. Wow. Wow. Yeah, which is a very special thing, I think. Um, it is a special thing. And look, I, I don't know how you'll conclude. I'll let you have the last word, Dr. Grant. But for me, I would always say abstain. There are a lot of good ways of enjoying life without alcohol. Did you want to conclude today? Yeah, look, absolutely, Lloyd, and I, I would really support that. And and while um, you and I respect everybody's decision, that they're allowed to do whatever they like, uh, particularly yes. as adults, I think our society would, would certainly function, I think, a whole lot more coherently and we would have a lot less of those uh, negative social problems that you mentioned and alluded to a lot earlier. If uh, if we certainly abstain, there's yeah. certainly better ways of being able to, to entertain yourself. Thank you, Dr. Grant. You're most welcome. You're listening to the Aussie Pastor here on Faith FM. Dr. Ross Grant, he's always interesting, isn't he, Hunter? Brilliant, eh? Yeah, I, it's, it's amazing to watch him too. Yes. Having gone to school with him, year 10, 11, 12, and then watch how the Lord's worked in his life. And he's become one of Australia's top research scientists and makes you glad you're not drinking alcohol when you listen to Ross. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, but as he says, it's, it's a choice for everybody. Everybody must make it and we respect whatever they decide. Wasn't an easy choice for me to make because I had a lot of, I had a lot of Aussie mates when I was growing up. Yeah, well, they went out of their way to see if they could give me alcohol. <laughs> yeah, well, I was never a great drinker. I mean, I I, I hung around um, rugby league boys, right? And I remember them all getting drunk uh, after we'd win a game, and I'd be the one who'd drive them home. Yeah, I love to drive people home yeah. too. I, I actually never liked the idea of of getting drunk and losing control. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd go into town with my mates here in Sydney, actually, and you'd see them get drunk and they lose complete control to the point where they don't even know where they are. That's right. And you wonder, well, if I wasn't here, how are these guys going to get home safely? Yeah, exactly. And so it, it always put me off. Mm, me uh, too. And the other thing is I never – you wouldn't know, I guess, but I never liked the taste of, of beer. Uh, I think it might be an acquired taste. I've got an addictive personality. I thought, yet again, another slippery slope I dare not venture yeah, onto. Yeah. I think that might have been very wise, and you made that decision at a fairly young age. Mm, early teens. Uh, because even though we may be in our 50s, we come up in a generation of young men who used to drink – who, who yes. drunk. Yes. They really drunk. Um, but very thankful to have Ross on there. I know next time he comes on, he's going to do a very uh, sensitive topic. <laughs> What's that, Lloyd? <laughs> <laughs> he's going to talk about obesity. I don't think I'll be here. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be one that, 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 that will challenge all of us, that's for sure. And he has some interesting – well, I don't know what he has to say yet. We haven't we, – we, we, well, we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, we will find out, but it'll be very interesting. This next song I'm going to play comes from Betty Karma Adventist College, Hunty. Yep. 
They're in the Solomon Islands. Yep, in fact, when you go to the, if you've been to the Solomon Islands and you land at the airport, Betty Karma Adventist College, which is a high school, primarily a high school, yep, is at the end of the runway. That's how close it is to the airport. And they have got this fabulous youth choir made up of the students in the school and they're singing this really big song, yep. Jerusalem.
I want to welcome to the program Harold Harker. He is becoming a regular on this program and I'm so grateful because not only is he a husband, a father, grandfather, great-grandfather, so he is a family man and perhaps that's his greatest claim to fame. He's also a retired administrator who actually was the leader of the church in Australia at one stage. We might ask him about that one day. So he's a retired administrator. He is a scholar of some renown. He's also, and this is why I've really got him on the program, one of the best historians I know. And he, he's got these tremendous stories that come out of the Reformation of the church under persecution. I want to welcome you to the program today, Harold. Thank you, Lloyd. It's great to be with you, and I love going through history and seeing what message there is in lives who have gone before, what they've gone through, how their faith is, and how they impact us today. Yeah, it is wonderful. We're going to talk about John Wycliffe, a giant in history, born somewhere around 1320, so a long, long time ago. What do we know about John Wycliffe's childhood? Well, John was born, it must have been to a good family because of where he went later, he was born in a little village, it's now even called Wycliffe, but it's only just a small, very small place in the northern part of Yorkshire in northeast England. So from there, we don't know much about his family, but that was his origin, and uh, he came from this part in England Okay. Well, I know it's cold up there. (laughs) Um, What religion was he? Well, England was a Catholic country at that time. He would have been born into the Catholic faith. He stayed a Catholic all his life, and uh, he died as a Catholic too. Do you know something? That's something I've learnt from you just in this uh, story. I never realised that, that John Wycliffe was always a Catholic. Was he well educated? Oh, absolutely, because at the young age of 16, he started as a student at Oxford University. Now, that's uh, one of the best universities in the world, and it was then too, and he enrolled in Belial College and started his education at the university just 16 years of age. I guess that's how we know he came from a good family because somehow they were able to pay for that incredible education. That's right, because it wasn't cheap. It's not cheap today and it wasn't cheap then and the majority of people didn't go to university but he was one of the educated people of his time. So he goes to university. Did he ever get married, have a family? No. In fact, after he finished university, he became a priest. And as a priest, he didn't marry. It's the, uh, um, yeah, so he just stayed unmarried his whole life. Did he do well as a priest? Was he popular? Did he go up through the ranks or was he always just a, a humble church pastor? Well, he uh, he was well known in good circles, but uh, he started out, he was given as the priest of the parish at Fillingham in Lincolnshire, but he still lived in Queen's College in Oxford. So like many people who were bishops and priests, you might be in charge of a parish, but you might live somewhere else. And he did that for a while too. How did he come to the attention of the King of England, which was something? But he, it is something to come to the attention of the King of England. What happened? 
Well, he started out and he was uh, eventually in charge of the education of a number of young men who were training for the priesthood. He wanted to be the leader of that group, but he wasn't. But the king noticed him. Now, the king had a problem. Let me tell you about this problem, Lloyd. In 1215, we've all heard of Magna Carta, the first charter of human rights. But King John had actually given England to the Pope as a fiefdom and was due to pay money every year. Wow. And after a while, that wasn't paid. And the Pope saying, hey, this money, what about it? And so the king used um, John Wycliffe as one of a group to come and give an answer to the Pope for this claim from the Pope. It's an incredible claim, really, isn't it, that somehow the Pope thinks he owns England and that the king is just a vassal of his, and so he has to pay the Pope some sort of tax or, or bond money or something. It's incredible, isn't it? Well, it goes back to Magna Carta. John said, I want to stay there as the king in 1215, and so he gave England to the Pope to do that. And that's where it came from. And they, after a while, didn't pay this uh, money that was due each year over to the Pope. And so there's always been this uh, difference between England and the Popes that came out later with Henry VIII and everything else. But it certainly was strong in his day with John Wycliffe and the king. He was helping the king as an educated uh, theologian who had to answer the Pope. Was he successful? Yes, they were. And he became a leading theologian and philosopher and was valued that way. In fact, he was known as the gospel doctor. He preached from the scripture, which was unusual in those days. So he was able to persuade the Pope on his argument. Well, he complained about the taxes and there was one other thing they complained about. The Pope would give a bishop's place to someone who lived in France or Italy or somewhere else and they never came there. They put a lower paying guy in to do the job and they collected all the money and they said, we want people from England here and this guy was arguing against that with the Pope because the king said, you're one of my spokesperson. And so he was used many of these times to uh, negotiate, if you could, a settlement between the church and the king of England. And they were able to negotiate some sort of settlement. Well, England is an island, and if you don't send it, what are you going to do? (laughs) (laughs) I think you've given us the answer there. Tell us a little bit about his personality. What type of personality did Wycliffe have? Well, he had a very quick temper. He could, the heat would rise pretty quickly and he could use very strong words. In fact, in those days, even right down to Luther's time, many of these people used extremely strong language against their opponents, calling them for everything. Uh, that was almost par for the course in those days. <laughs> It's probably a bad thing to say, um, Harold, but often in ministry, because I've, I've been aware of the language they used, um, often you wish that we had the same uh, freedoms that they had to express our, our frustrations, but we don't, and perhaps that's a good thing. Look, in 1377, he was accused of heresy by the Catholic Church. What was that all about? And why was the Pope so angry with him? 
Well, the church found that he was preaching from the Bible and that wasn't seen as the book for all people in those days. Only a few priests in in convents and monasteries could read the Bible. No one else could read it, but he started preaching it and uh, giving the, the words of Scripture the prominence and people didn't like it. And so the Pope, through the bishops, called him down and called him a heretic. And he's come, got to come and answer why he's doing this and why he's a heretic. In fact, let me tell you, the Pope didn't like him so much that when the Pope wrote a letter against you, it was called a bull. And he wrote five bulls against Wycliffe for his heresy for putting the Bible above what the Pope would say. The Bible became the authority. And so he's called a heretic because of that. In some ways, you look at Wycliffe, even though he was a Roman Catholic all his life, in some ways he's laying the foundations for the Protestant Reformation of the Bible and the Bible only. Oh, well, you know, because Wycliffe, you know, he went on not only to preach the Bible, he actually translated it into English, which was an unheard of thing. I want to get into that story, actually, Harold, about how he translated the Bible, because the Pope's so angry with him, he writes these bulls against him. He actually gets banned from ministry of some sort. Is that right? Well, that's right. He was actually sent to a, another parish just to put him out of the way. He was not allowed to be at the university anymore. He wasn't the leader of the university. He was sort of put out on the side... Uh, hung out to dry as it were but that's the time he used to translate the Bible so he translates the Bible from Latin to English is that correct that's right they had the Latin Vulgate and he would translate it from that so that people in England could read the Bible so did the Bible then become available to the English people on the completion of that translation well, not many people could afford a Bible, but, you know, he also um, trained young men to be preachers who went all around England. They were called Lollards, and they preached about the Bible using texts that they either had copied or knew, and so he really was the instrument to start the use of the Bible right across England. And uh, his Bible was his authority above everything else. So Satan tries to quieten, to silence him, and while he's literally banned from the pulpit or from having great influence, this guy actually translates the Bible into English, which in the history of the English races would have to be seen as one of the key pivotal points. That's very true. Uh, and you said, how is he related? Well, he's called by many historians the morning star of the Reformation. Here is a Catholic priest who promotes the Bible, elevates the Bible as the first and final authority and is shunted off to the side, translates it, trains young men to preach. They go all through England and the Bible is known by a lot more people because of this guy who was true to the word of God. 
actually it'd be fair to say that in later translations hundreds of years down the track they still used Wycliffe's translation as a base is that correct? That's correct uh, Wycliffe and then Tyndale did more later but the two of them were the great translators for English on the Bible. Yeah we might look at Tyndale's story one day so this guy dies, uh, where did he die and do we know why he died? Well he was he was running a mass it was the last day of december 1384 and i guess he's taking the mass if you go to the church st mary's church in lutterworth you can see the chair that say this was wickliffe chair you can see the pulpit there you can see all about him and he was leading out in mass still a catholic priest but presenting the bible and he probably died of a heart attack died there in church 1384 in december so he dies he's buried something interesting happens tell us the story well the time goes on probably it was uh, what's that 30 31 years later there is a council called across in europe by the pope the council of constance and uh, this guy whose bible actually was taken from England across to Prague and influenced John Huss. You can see how God uses the Bible and as it's taken across, a queen went and married the king over there and he took, she took the Bible with her and her friends and Huss learns it and Huss is also called to account at this Council of Constance. They didn't like the Bible to be in the hands of every person and so they had a court case over this guy who's died 31 years before and they have 260 counts they condemn him for preaching bible truth at the council of constance then they said how can we deal with a guy who's dead so they say dig him up Bury, burn his bones throw them down into the water and get rid of this guy burn his books and burn his bones so 31 years after he died and was buried he's dug up and burnt and the ashes put in the river swift there near Lutterworth I'm, wow. I'm smiling at that you know and I don't know whether I should smile but I'm thinking to myself uh, Satan, too late He'd already translated the Bible. He'd already lit the fire. The bushfire was raging across Britain. As you said, it went all the way to Europe. Uh, Huss, we'll see, we'll hear from you about his story in the not too uh, distant future. He write, he, he lights the Reformation in Europe. Uh, I mean, it, it could not be silenced. The fire could not be put out. And the symbolic burning of his bones and throwing him into the river means nothing because he'd been asleep waiting for Jesus for 30 years anyway. Wonderful story. What do you think he'll be remembered for the most? I believe he's remembered as the one who starts this thought that fires Huss and then Huss was the forerunner for Luther and the Reformation. He starts it over in England. Even though he's a Catholic priest, he believes the Bible. Let me tell you what he wrote to the Pope just before he died. He said, I submit the gospel of Christ is the body of the law of God Jesus Christ who gave this gospel I believe to be the true God and true man the gospel excels all other parts of scripture he was known as the gospel doctor 
wow a priest who is the gospel doctor and brings the story of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. That's what he's known for. Wonderful, wonderful story of a champion of God, a Bible translator. And every time, I want to, to our listeners, just want to remind you that every time you open your Bible and you read it in English, remember John Wycliffe champion of God one of those men that when I get to heaven I'd like to speak to I'd like to talk to great great story thank you Harold Harker thank you Lloyd we'll see you again yeah God bless you're listening to the Aussie pastor here on Faith FM hey hunty yeah mate a little trailer to that story not many people know yep 60 years after John Wycliffe dies, the Gutenberg Press. Oh, you love that story. It's an amazing thing. This is an invention where now they can um, print the Bible and get it all over the world. Yep. So, look, God brings Wycliffe to the forefront. Yep. He translates the Bible. 60 years later, we've got the Gutenberg Press, and it's all, all over the then known world. Fantastic. Oh, it's a special thing, isn't it? When God yes. has a plan, even those who oppose him have got to step aside. It will always come through. Yep. This song, Lift Up My Voice by Frontier, again a new song to me, but I, I like it a whole lot.
nice song. Beautiful from song. Frontier. Love I it. lift up my voice. New song for me, but mm. I really, really enjoyed me that. Me too. Hey, Hunty. Yeah, mate. In a couple of weeks' time, it'll be Easter. Yes. And Easter, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You know where I'll be? Where will you be? I'll be in Victoria. That's right. You'll be at camp. Now, I want to talk to all our Victorian listeners. If you're in Melbourne and you'd like to come to Lilydale Adventist Church over Easter weekend, I would love to meet you. That'd be nice. Because I'll be there. Could, you, you've got a lot of friends in Victoria, especially Melbourne. Yeah, I have. I have. Actually, my grandmother and my dad all come from Victoria. I've only been there a couple of times in my life, so I'm looking forward to it, though. Hmm. This Saturday, though, yes, I'll be at New Hope. You will be preaching at New Hope. What's the address at New Hope? 357 Windsor Road, Vineyard, New South Wales. Postcode? Two seven six five, I reckon. Yeah, two seven six five. Probably wrong. Love to see you there. Worship starts at ten o'clock. But here's the deal: come and join us. Yeah, come and join us. If you're in Northwest Sydney, come and join us. Come meet the Aussie pastor in person. Love to meet you in person. But doesn't matter where you are in Australia. Any Saturday morning, starting nine thirty, maybe ten. It's it's either nine thirty or ten, isn't it? Normally ten. I don't know about that. I oh, know that's true. I that's think true. most Adventist churches probably start at 9.30. Yep. Yeah. So wherever you are in Australia, you just look up your local Adventist church, go along and check it out. I'll guarantee you this, you'll get a warm welcome. And God blessing you, you will go away but you, you with know, a, having, having learnt a little bit more about Jesus. Exactly. But if you can't make it to a church and you're flooded in, we do a live broadcast of our church every Saturday on www.findjesus.tv. Just put in findjesus.tv. That's the one. Us. Yeah. Yep. We loved it. But we, we, we encourage you to go to real church. Of course. It's so much better than just the online oh, thing, Of course. It? Yeah. Yes. I want to do a little Bible study. That's good. Have you got your Bible? I do. John chapter 14, verses. Tell me where we're going to go. And hopefully it's verse 12. Well, I said verse 13, but you wanted to go back to verse 12. And when I listened <laughs> to your reasoning, it made sense. Good stuff. We're talking about prayer. Yes. And how important prayer is. And if you've never prayed... I just, I just hope that you'll get a little sense of how beautiful prayer is, how powerful it can be, and what a difference it could make to your life if you would just start to talk to Jesus. Read us the text, Hunty. Sure. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, and even greater works. Because I'm going to be with the Father, you can ask anything in my name, and I will do it, so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, Ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Jesus repeats himself there. Yeah. Yep. What does he say? Can you? Did you pick that up, Hunty? Look, doesn't matter if you didn't, um, but I'm just wondering, did you pick up what Jesus said there? He repeated himself twice. Yep. Ask. Ask what? Anything in my name. And what? And I will do it. That's a pretty staggering mm, that's comment staggering. from Jesus Christ. Considering Jesus raised people from the dead. He said, now... Bear in mind, this is a live Bible study. Yes. And I can tell you the truth, as God is our witness, That's I right. have not gone through this Bible study with hunting. You never do. We actually do these Bible studies online, and I love <laughs> to ask him questions. <laughs> here we go. And uh, we really appreciate our audience here on uh, Faith, Faith FM, FM, but the online audience probably is significantly bigger. It can go to 
one or two million people. True. And so I'll say to hey, wouldn't it be good if we did have one million people listening here on Faith FM? Wouldn't that be great? I think in the next couple of weeks we're going to start to put some feelers out there and see who is out there listening and maybe do some live stuff. Yep, maybe a free offer or two. Yeah. Mm. So I love to ask these questions to Hunty live without giving him a warning. I don't have to give him a warning, though, because he's been walking with Jesus for a long, long time. <laughs> Hunty. Yes. If I ask, so this is how I'd ask in Jesus' name. Now, this is how I'd do it, listener. Dear Lord, I come before you today and I ask, and then I say what it is, for whatever it is, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, amen. So I ask in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, That's amen. Right. If I ask like that, what does Jesus say? He'll, He's very clear here. He says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I, I, I get onto Facebook now and again, not a lot anymore, and I see these GT four GTHOs, and I'm not being facetious here. I'm, this is real. Yep. There's four GTHOs XY three five ones. Oh, my favourite. Going for somewhere around a million dollars. Yep. So if I go to Lord and say, uh, "Dear Father, I come before you in the name of Jesus <laughs> Christ of Nazareth," I'm serious. Yes. I ask for a XY GTHO in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. Well, I get it. Nope. Why not? The Bible text is very clear. Yeah. It's got to pass the test. Let me quickly whiz back to it. It's he's on. Hunty's on today. It's he's got on to fire. bring glory to the Father. Ah, <laughs> I thought. Now, look, honestly, we never went through that. I thought I might get him on that. That's right. So when you ask in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, it's got to bring glory to the Father. That's right. So if I ask Jesus for a GDHO in the name of, if I ask, you know, the Father for a GDHO, I can't see how that would bring any glory to the Father. I used to teach my kids, I said, when you pray, you're not praying to Santa Claus. Yeah. Mm. But he does do some marvellous things. He does. The first time I ever recognised and realised the power of praying in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and we should do it. We should do it. Our whole ministry exists because we pray in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Correct. We are the most un- Fundraising people on the planet. We're the most unworthy, <laughs> but we're unright. We, 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 I know I didn't use the right language there, but we we do not do fundraising. Not well, and yet no. <laughs> God keeps this ministry afloat because we ask in the name of Jesus Nazareth. True. Hey, quick story. Yep, I remember when I was on the Gold Coast. It would have been my second year out. Yep, I decided we were going to go across to the Solomon Islands where we got that song just a few minutes ago, the Jerusalem song. Yeah, love that song. We're going to go across there. We were going to Kakundu to build a great big dining hall for the Kakundu Adventist School, which is right up on the north of the mm, Solomon. Flying build. We had to raise about twenty five, thirty plus thousand. Wow. I lived on the Gold Coast. I'm the youth pastor. I got an idea. I don't know where this idea. I had to come from Jesus, eh? Yep. So I get this idea. Why don't you on a Saturday night hire SeaWorld? Great idea. So I went and saw SeaWorld. So you see, if we hire SeaWorld on a Saturday night, I can sell the tickets to all the churches in South Queensland. Three, 4,000 people turn up. The money's raised in one night. Wow. You get it? That's bold. So I went to the treasurer of the church in South Queensland. He probably was a treasurer of 50, 60 churches. I had to put a deposit down, 20,000 bucks. Oh. I said, would you give me $20,000 oh. to hire SeaWorld? He said, yes, but if I don't get this money back, it's on your head. So I took the $20,000. I put the deposit down. We had SeaWorld hide. We put the advertising out. I was expecting an avalanche, a tsunami of people coming back to me wanting to go to SeaWorld. Yep. 
You know, by the Saturday night, you know how many tickets we'd sold? Oh, how many? About 300. That's not And many. we had to sell something like 2,000 just to break even. Oh, dear. I was so scared. The Sabbath was going out. It was the middle of winter. We were at the church. We were praying. I sent the kids and everyone off to SeaWorld just down the road from the church. I didn't go. Oh, dear. But I'd been praying the whole time in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that's a good prayer. Yes. Because we were going to the Solomon Islands. We're going to build a, a dining hall for a very poor school up there. We were doing missionary work. It's a good prayer. Yep. I prayed in the name of Jesus for two, three weeks. Nothing seemed to be happening. Would it bring glory to the Father? Yes. <sighs> Eventually I knew I had to go and face some music. So I started with great trepidation in my car off to see where I got caught in a traffic jam just outside the church. Oh, really? It took me an hour to get to SeaWorld. Why? That traffic jam was going all the way to SeaWorld, and that oh. night there was about 4,000 people at SeaWorld, oh. and only 300 booked. Oh, my. And I have learned since that day, yep. I have known at the power of praying in the name of Jesus. Yep. And listener, I'm telling you out there, we need to learn to pray in the name of Jesus. That's right. To bring glory to the Father. Yes. If you've got a habit in your life that you cannot overcome, hunty, yes. pray in the name of Jesus. That's right. Lord Jesus, I come before you. I am hooked on pornography. You can pray that prayer, hunty. Sure. In the name of Jesus, give me the victory. God will heal you. You will get the victory. Or, oh, dear Lord, I come before you, I am hooked on eating too much food, or I'm hooked on lying, I'm hooked on dishonesty, or I've got this problem. In the name of Jesus, give me the victory. Does it bring glory to the Father? Yes, it does bring glory to the Father, and you will have the victory. Yes. If it brings glory to God and you pray for it, Jesus will do it. Beautiful. And I've seen it all over my life in all sorts of different areas. I've seen it with addictions. I've seen it in my service, in my ministry to the Lord. I've seen it um, when I've been praying for people, when I've been praying for my family. Pray in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. It brings glory to the Father. Huge, huge things, hunty, yep. are going to happen. Pray in the name of Jesus. Yep. It's not just about the manger Where the baby lay It's not all about the angels Who sing for him that day It's not all about the shepherds On the bright and shining star It's not all about the wise men Who traveled from afar It's about the cross it's about my sin It's about how Jesus came to be born once So that we could be born again It's about the stone That was rolled away So that you and I could have real life someday It's about the cross Just 
just about the good things in this life I've done. It's not all about the treasures or the trophies that I've won. It's not about the righteousness that I find within. It's all about His precious blood that saved me. Father, bless every one of our listeners with a powerful, powerful prayer life in you, to you. And in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, save my farm for your glory and your honour. Amen. My name is Lloyd Grolamond. I'm the Aussie pastor, and I love you. But thank God Jesus loves you. He loves all of us so much more. See you next time. Thanks for joining the Aussie Pastor. If you enjoyed today's program and would like to find out more about Jesus, our ministry, always to support us, go to findjesus.tv. 